Volume One, Chapter Four of Celestina. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Celestina by Charlotte Turner Smith, Volume One, Chapter Four. The return of Mr. and Mrs. Molyneux to London was postponed from time to time till November. Lord Castlenorth had been too ill to set out on his journey to England at the time he proposed, and the family meeting which was to settle all that related to the marriage was now delayed till after Christmas. Willoughby, however, testified no impatience he had promised to meet his sister and her husband in town on their arrival but instead of doing so he sent such an insufficient excuse as must have appeared very strange to matilda had she thought much about it but immersed in pleasures and pursuits of her own she gave herself very little time to reflect on her brother's conduct and was far from supposing that he absented himself because he could not see celestina without increasing and confirming a passion which he had many reasons against indulging and of which he was determined to cure himself by absence and reflection the negotiation with his uncle which had been carried so far by his mother he neither declined nor forwarded but suffered it to remain nearly on the footing she had left it flattering himself that by the time miss fitzhaman arrived in london he should have so far conquered his early attachment as to have an heart as well the hand which he had promised to his mother's entreaties to offer her though his endeavours to forget celestina had hitherto been quite unsuccessful he had however acquired so much resolution as to determine not to see her till the arrival of his destined wife and the final settlement of everything that related to his marriage should put it out of his power to break the engagement he had made to mrs willoughby in her last hours and to sacrifice everything to his passion the struggle he underwent however was dreadful and by continually repeating to himself the necessity there was for his forgetting celestina he so accustomed himself to think of her that he in reality soon ceased to think with interest of anybody else and though he endeavoured to persuade himself that he should have courage to acquit himself of what he tried to think his duty to his family to his mother's memory and himself there was no intelligence he so much dreaded as that of the arrival of his uncle's family in england celestina on her part passed her time in a way very unpleasant to her mrs molyneux now mistress of herself plunged into unceasing dissipation and as celestina was frequently desired to accompany her 
and always to make one of the parties she collected at her own house she found that the expenses of dress alone would greatly exceed the income of her little fortune and that she should soon exhaust it to live among people whose society gave her no pleasure and who for the most part considered her only as she was capable of filling up a table or the corner of a couch when it was vacant her quickness of apprehension and extreme sensibility made her too frequently remark that the table or the couch might in the apprehension of matilda always be as well and sometimes better filled and these observations together with her growing dislike to mr molyneux and the people with whom he associated who not unfrequently treated her with the pertinent familiarity which they thought themselves at liberty to use towards mrs molyneux's companion renewed before she had been six weeks in town her wish to quit them for ever and to enjoy in her own way the small independence given her by her lamented benefactress the certainty that miss fitzhaman was so soon to become the wife of the only man for whom she ever had felt the least degree of partiality hastened the execution of her project she now heard every day of the great beauty the extraordinary accomplishments and the immense fortune of the future bride while mrs molyneux was exercising her fancy on the equipages and other preparations which were soon to be on foot for the wedding of her brother a subject that celestina always listened to with impatience which though she with difficulty concealed it from others she was painfully conscious of herself the eternal harangues of mrs molyneux on taste and elegance had always been fatiguing to her but she was more than usually disgusted when the purpose of those lectures was to decide upon or to describe the bridal fineries intended for willoughby and miss fitzhangman a letter now arrived from lady castlenorth announcing her intentions of being in london with her lord and her daughter the following week and at this intelligence celestina no longer hesitating wrote to the person near sidmouth to whom she had spoken the preceding summer and finding she could be immediately received at the lodging she had then looked at she packed up and sent by the wagon the small collection of books given her by mrs willoughby which with her clothes and the legacy vested in the funds were all her worldly possessions and that evening after supper when by a chance very unusual with them mr and mrs molyneux were without company she declared her intentions of going into the country the next day mr molyneux twirling about a wine-glass and humming a tune seemed to attend very little to the information his wife after hearing it with almost equal indifference said 
I cannot imagine, my dear, why you think of going into the country now, or what you propose by it. Nothing more, replied Celestina, piqued at the coldness of her manner, than to accustom myself at once to a mode of life which my narrow fortune renders, if not absolutely necessary, at least highly prudent. Prudence, cried Molyneux with a smile which Celestina thought a contemptuous one, is an acquisition very unusual at eighteen, but a girl of spirit with so pretty a person as yours should be rather ambitious than prudent, and should try to make her fortune by marriage instead of hiding herself in the country. Numberless young women about town have done extremely well, who, without any compliment, have not had your share of beauty. Very possibly, sir, replied Celestina, but unless my mind was disposed as their minds probably were, which I believe it never will be, the personal advantages you so flatteringly allow me will never obtain the affluence you think so desirable. What do you mean to say? answered he. What? Do you pretend that you would not marry as other women do for money or title? For neither, upon my honor. Pooh! I thought you had more sense, but since it's so, my dear Celestina, I wish you all the possible felicity in your new plan of pastoral amusement, and doubt not but that some tender and amiable philander in the shape of a young West Country curate will enable you to realize to your heart's content all your ideas of disinterested love and rural happiness. Molyneux then sauntered away, and his lady, looking in a pocket mirror, and picking her teeth with the nicest care, took up the argument. You know, Celestina, that I have the greatest regard in the world for you, and that I have argued with you for ever about this nonsensical resolution, which I cannot imagine what put into your head. You will be tired to death, child, in the country at this time of year. However, if you will go, do stay here at least till after my brother is married. We shall have half the world with us then, and I shall want you for twenty things. At the mention of Willoughby's marriage, Celestina, though so much accustomed to hear it, changed color, and her voice as well as her look might have betrayed the uneasy sensations she felt, if Mrs. Molyneux had not been always too much occupied by herself to attend very narrowly to another. "'Pardon me, dear madame,' said Celestina, "'I certainly cannot be wanted on that occasion. You will have so many other friends about you that I shall not be missed, and I have no right indeed i never had any to be upon an equality with the persons who will then be assembled about you let me therefore find my own place in society and learn at once to submit to it 
after some other conversation celestina still unwilling to appear in the slightest degree ungrateful for past kindness or too impatient of her present situation agreed to stay another week in town and retired to her own room relieved by having thus declared her intentions and fixed the time when her present uneasy stay of dependence would be at an end by this delay she repented when the next day notice was received by mrs molyneux of the arrival of lord and lady castlenorth at their house in grosvenor street mr and mrs molyneux instantly waited on them the next evening they were to return the visit in form and thus celestina was compelled to be present at a meeting she had been studiously endeavouring to avoid lord castlenorth was one of those unfortunate beings who had been brought up never to have a wish unprevented or a want ungratified he was born when his father was far advanced in life the sole heir to one of the most ancient families and opulent fortunes in england and was of so much consequence that till he was near eighteen he was hardly ever suffered out of the sight of his father he was then released by death from the officious affliction which had long been very troublesome to him and with everything on his side but a good constitution he sat out on a wild career of pleasure in which before he had materially hurt his fortune he was stopped by the apprehension of declining health his figure was one of those which looked as if the blasts of january would blow them through and through and the irregularities of his life had so much impaired a habit naturally weak that at thirty he was a mere shadow and then was told by his physicians that he must resolve on a residence of some time in the south of europe if he would avoid going to that country from whose born no traveller returns to which having a invincible aversion he lost not a moment in complying with their advice but as he soon recovered some degree of health he grew every day less attentive to injunctions they had given as to his manner of life and relapsing into his former indiscretions he was again reduced to extremities and when very little hope of his life remained was recommended by one of his medical friends in london to put himself under the care of dr maclaurin a scottish physician who had been settled for two or three years at naples with his wife and family there he was treated with the most assiduous attention not only by the doctor himself but by mrs maclaurin and her daughter then near thirty who was so reasonable as to allow herself to be five-and-twenty she was tall and had a tolerable face with which her ambition to be admired suffered her not to be content in its natural state she had been brought up to attend most seducely to her own interest 
and pursue the establishment of her fortune by marriage she had therefore learned early to fawn and flatter and to the cunning of her mother united some portion of her abilities of her father mrs maclaurin was one of the that species of beings who are by courtesy denominated good sort of woman all her virtues were negative and of the few vices she had it in her power to practise she contented herself with malice and defamation and even in those she never indulged herself unless very certain that the objects were incapable of retort and totally defenceless she had now however but little opportunity of gratification for though she had lived three years in italy she understood not a word of the language and her attempts to amend the world being therefore made in one not understood by those in whose favour they were exerted were very little comprehended and of course failed of affording her much satisfaction her talents being thus perforce confined to her own household had taken another turn and had been applied to the acquisition of money and of securing a good match for her daughter the doctor though really a man of some abilities had not hitherto been successful enough in his profession to be enabled to give her a fortune the project of marrying her well was equally interesting to him and among the various patients he had received into his house since he resided at naples the elder son of a very opulent merchant in london and an old baronet who had several daughters older than miss maclaurin very narrowly escaped her multiform attractions by the impertinent remonstrances of their families lord castlenorth had no relations but miss willoughby who was very unlikely to interfere in any matrimonial project he had besides a much larger fortune and was a much higher rank than any of those for whom the family of maclaurin had intended the honour of their alliance but the very circumstances which rendered the prospect of such a marriage most alluring seemed to preclude the probability of success among the few things lord castlenorth had learned of his father the principal was to value himself on his descent and as far as related to his own family he was a genealogist almost as soon as he could speak as he advanced in life he found himself of so little consequence for in individual merit that he was compelled to avail himself of the names of his ancestors from whom only he derived any importance at all and the punny insect shivering at a breeze swelled with conscious pride when he recited the names of heroes from whom he had so woefully degenerated 
this pride of ancestry was now the most distinguishing feature in a character where it appeared with the greatest prominence from the faintness and insipidity of the other traits for being no longer able to pursue the dissolute manner of life which he had adopted rather from fashion than inclination he had now in other respects no character at all miss maclaurin who began to study him as soon as he was received by her father soon saw it and saw it with dismay for she supposed that it would be an insuperable bar to those hopes which she thought she might otherwise very reasonably entertain the doctor however had too many resources to be so easily discouraged he fabricated with admirable ingenuity a story of which he justly supposed the ignorance and indolence of his patient would prevent his ever detecting the falsehood he said that he was really a hamilton and he had taken his present name in compliance with the whim of a distant relation who had on that condition given him his property the only objection being thus removed mrs maclaurin had a fair field for her attractive talents and they were so effectually exerted that in about five months after lord castlenorth's reception into the family of maclaurin he became himself a member of it and miss maclaurin returned to england as his wife that her father might still retain without too scrupulous an inquiry his relationship to the house of hamilton and that her mother's coarse figure and coarser manners might be no disgrace to lady castlenorth in the sphere which she now prepared to blaze she prevailed upon them to retire to their native country on a pension which there gave them consequence while her ladyship who while she was miss maclaurin had nothing doubted of her own eminent perfections was now so convinced of their irresistible power by having thus established her in a situation so much above her hopes that she thought herself born for the government and amendment of the world and from that period had been advancing in arrogance and ostentation till the present hour when at the age of fifty with an unwieldy person and a broad face where high cheekbones appeared emulous of giving some protection to two grey prominent eyes whose lids seemed inadequate to shade them lady castlenorth was as well as her rank and her talents and her travels qualified in her own opinion for universal dominion no content therefore with governing her lord with despotic sway which indeed saved him the trouble and probably the disgrace of governing himself she assumed towards the rest of the world a style equally dictatorial her opinion was strongly enforced on every topic that came before her in private anecdote in public debates in literature 
in politics, in fashions, she was equally omniscient. And whether the conversation ran on taxes or on taste, in laying out grounds or on setting out a dinner, in making a piece or poem, she understood all, descanted on all, and could decide on all, in a way from which few of her auditors had at the moment courage to appeal. By the side of this majestic figure, her lord, the descendant of the old earls of Gloucester, of Welsh princes and English kings, sunk into insignificance. His diminutive figure, now shrunk by age and sickness, his sallow and withered countenance, and his feeble step, formed a decided contrast to his robust and Juno-like lady, by whom he suffered himself to be led about, without ever pretending to distant from her opinion, unless in matters of heraldry or genealogy, where he still ventured to take the lead, in which she was for the most part willing to indulge him. His lordship's ill health had made him also conversant in physic, a science in which, notwithstanding her hereditary claim to it, Lady Castlenorth had not shrewd much disposition to contend with him, but as there was more trouble and disgust than honour to be obtained by a constant attention to it, as applied to his real or imaginary complaints, she had very frequently delegated her authority, and at length quite relinquished her knowledge to a relation who, being a widow, and said to possess a pretty fortune, though nobody ever knew where it lay, now about six and forty, had with infinite philanthropy dedicated her days to relieve the infirmities of her fellow-creatures, without any other advantage than that of being received in turn at their houses. She knew every receipt, whether of diet or medicine, that could be named, as preventative or cure, understood the preparation of every quack remedy, and the qualities of all the drugs of which they are compounded, nor was she less acquainted with the human frame, and would in all companies give the history of any complaint to which it is subject in technical terms, to the wonder of some and the terror of many hearers. Such were the manners of Mrs. Calder, and her person was one of those which, but for their singularity, nobody would ever recollect as having seen at all. She now resided constantly with Lord and Lady Castlenorth, to both of whom she had contrived to render herself necessary. With them she had been abroad, where she had greatly improved her stock of knowledge, and had actually written a treatise on the goiters of the Alpine peasants, which Lady Castlenorth was polishing for publication and she was now of the party who were assembled at Mrs. Molyneux's, where the last but not the least in consequence appeared also, the destined bride of Willoughby. The claim of this young 
lady to eminent beauty or to anything more than a barely tolerable person would certainly not have been allowed had she not been heiress to the illustrious house of Fitzhaman. but the eustion of pretense which she had a right to seemed to give her a pretense also to much of what nature had very scantily allowed her she was as tall and almost as large as her mother whom she greatly resembled her complexion was brown and as her hair was not dark the want of contrast produced a muddy and heavy effect which nothing could have relieved but two dark eyes whose powers were assisted by a greater quantity of rouge than unmarried ladies are even by the french customs usually allowed what expression they naturally had however was not pleasing and what they borrowed from the addition added more to their fierceness than their lustre they were eyes of high claims and expectations which demanded rather than solicited admiration and signified pretty plainly the real disposition of a character inflated with ideas of its own consequence and considering more than half the world as beings of another species whose evils she could not feel for because she was placed where it was impossible she could ever share them to the personal arrogance of her mother she added the hereditary pride of her father the first had taught her that hardly any man could deserve so perfect and accomplished a creature the second that it was more desirable to unite herself with willoughby and thus continue her own illustrious race than lose or share her consequence by marrying a nobleman of superior rank some degree of personal partiality too contributed to render this resolution more pleasing to her for though she had not seen her cousin for between three and four years his graceful and beautiful form when he left eton with his dark auburn hair flowing over his shoulders had made a very lasting impression in his favour end of volume one chapter four recording by linda marie nielsen vancouver b c